Well, so glad you guys are here. We are in um, week seven in a series. Um, want to tell you a couple things about our schedule. Uh, if you have a calendar or if you write dates down or whatever, um, we're not meeting the week of spring break, which is March 13. So don't show up here, March 13. And then we're also not meeting the week of Good Friday, which is March 27. So March 13 and 27, we're not meeting. But on the week of Good Friday, I would invite you to come and um, we'll, be, we'll just be in the main auditorium on that, on that Friday evening. So we'd love to have you come there. And then this series will end on April 10, is kind of where, what the, what the schedule looks like. <clears throat> um, We've been looking at uh, world religions in seven sentences using one particular sentence that we feel like this allows us to peer into this particular worldview or religion and have, have a better understanding both of what these people believe and practice and then also how we can build bridges um, to them as well. Next week, uh, just as an invite, we're going to be... Um, I, I, I changed one of our sentences. Is that okay? Uh, we're going to be doing Mormonism. <clears throat> um, and so I've actually invited um, a friend of mine who he's, he's in a PhD program right now in apologetics um, out in California. And this is sort of his wheelhouse. In fact, he's going to be in the area. He's going to be in Utah like the week before. They take these uh, immersive trips with students. He'll probably tell you more about it. But he's going to be coming through, and I said, man, this is a great opportunity. And I, I cut Taoism. Are you terribly bothered that I cut Taoism? Okay. Um, I know more Mormons than Taoists, so I, I, I thought you wouldn't be too bothered <clears throat> by that. So you'll, you'll hear the one sentence for what Mormonism is. So I would invite you ba uh, back next week for that. And it'll be a little bit different too. Um, we're going to take communion up front. Um, my friend, oh, his name is Ryan Pauley. And um, Ryan is, will be teaching for about 45, 50 minutes. And then I'm probably going to be roving with a microphone. And um, you can ask questions of Ryan about Mormonism and, and that sort of thing. So I think it'll be fun. It'll be kind of a little bit, a little different. Um, tonight we're looking at Buddhism. And the, the one sentence for Buddhism, life is suffering. You think, oh, that's joyous. <laughs> life is suffering. Um, in your bulletin, there's some helpful vo uh, vocabulary. We'll hit on most of those. So if, if one of those words is used and you kind of want to make a note by it, if that's helpful in any way, this is the vocabulary um, of the Buddhist traditions. And I mentioned one resource um, I forgot to put some other ones on there. The one I mentioned was the Lotus on the Cross. Let me give you another one um, that I just thought of after we printed the bulletin. Dr. Paul Williams, um, he wrote a book um, called Unexpected Way on Converting from Buddhism to Catholicism. Um, he is a PhD in Buddhist studies. He spent like his, well, 20-some years promoting Buddhism. Um, writing about it, teaching on it. Like I said, he's got a PhD. And uh, he, he came to faith in Jesus. He became a Catholic believer. And he's he, he loves his Buddhist friends. He's very kind and warm. Uh, but that, that's a really, really good, good book. So anyway, I'll just mention that one. As we think about um, Buddhism, I'm going to show you an image if we can get this up on the 
screen here. Let's see. That's not it. Okay. Can you see that image there? This is a world map. The, um, the orange color represent the Buddhists. Um, there are about 502 million Buddhists uh, in the world. Like I said, you can sort of see it's the Southeast Asia is where they're largely, largely congregated. It makes up about 6.3% of the world. Um, what, what it takes for a religion to be a, a technically a world religion is it has to be at least 5% of the world population. If religion is 5%, then it's considered a world religion. <clears throat> and so it certainly, it certainly does that. Buddhism moved from India. That's where it started. It started out, it, it, this, you know, the founder of it, he's a Hindu. And I'm glad we talked about Hinduism last week, even though I, I heard from a lot of you said, man, my, my head was spinning when I left because I don't even fully quite understand it. It's very hard for Westerners to get Eastern ideas because it's just so, so different. But it begins in India. It's a Hindu movement, you might say. And then it moves to what is now Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, then through uh, Northern and Eastern Asia, finally to like China, Japan, even the United States. Uh, Buddhism is one of the three what are called missionary religions, along with Christianity and Islam. <clears throat> that is, the Buddhist said toward the end of his life, you know, as Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Buddhist said, I want you to go into the world. He didn't use that exact language. But I want you to share my dharma. That's one of the vocabulary. That means his teaching, his particular, share my dharma for, for the benefit of, <clears throat> or for the betterment of people. And there are many places where Buddhism, it's so ingrained in culture that people have a hard time distinguishing the religion just from culture itself. I remember um, when I graduated college, I went and spent one year in South Korea, and I lived in a little island off the southern coast called Jeju-do. And Buddhism was so ingrained that there would be Christians, Christians there, who, who would celebrate fe these Buddhist feasts and do these different things. And I remember just being confused, and I was like, what? You're a Christian, right? Oh, yes, of course, I love Jesus. Hey, but isn't, isn't this a Buddhist thing? And they really couldn't divide, well, no, these feasts or these meals or these holidays. It Probably the closest thing to us would be if there's a secular atheist here and he celebrates Christmas. And you'd say, you're celebrating the birth of Christ? No, it's, it's just so woven into American culture that it's done without necessarily the religious uh, fervor, if that makes sense. And so that's what you have going on in many, many places. Um, <clears throat> it's important, again, as, as I mentioned, that we talked about Hinduism <clears throat> because you can't understand Buddhism without at least knowing a little bit about Hinduism in that context. Do you remember last week, if you were here, Hinduism, we talked about the Varna system or the caste system? And do you remember there were four Varnas, like four groups? There's, there's the Brahmins, they're, they're the priestly class. And in, in Hinduism at this time, the only person who could experience nirvana, release from birth and rebirth, you had to be in this group. So if you're down here, you hope in later births you eventually make it up to the Brahmin class, and then, then you have hopes 
of uh, getting off the wheel of what we would say reincarnation, transmigration of the soul. You experience moksha. You get off this crazy thing that just keeps going around and around. Buddha, um, that's not his name. He, he, he gets it. He's born in the second class. So he's not even one of the Brahmins, but he's born into the Kshatriya or the warrior class. And of course, there were the merchants and then the servants, these four groups right here. And um, so who, who was Buddha? That's his title. His name is Siddhartha Gautama. That's his birth name, Siddhartha Gautama. So you'll oftentimes hear him referred to as Gautama Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama Buddha or just the Buddha. But that is his birth name. He lives from about 560 to 480. So just think like 500 in your head. If if you're like me, I like even numbers. (laughs) So he's about 500 BC, okay? He's born in India to a Hindu family, a very affluent. Um, he's a prince. He, he lives in a palace. Okay, it's opulence. It's affluence. And his, um, uh, think of the, you ever see the movie Aladdin? Remember, she like escapes from the palace and she goes in the city and all that sort of thing. That's, that's what uh, Siddhartha Gautama did. He's in a palace and... Um, his father has kept him from seeing, he's never let him go outside the palace. He's never let him see an old person. He's never let him see a sick person. He's never let him see uh, a burial practice, any of those things. So he has a very sheltered uh, mind in this opulent palace. Well, one day he sneaks out of the palace and he gets in a chariot and his charioteer is there with him. And as he's driving, he has what are called the four sights. This is what also one of the vocab things on your, on your page here. The four sights. He sees four things. He sees a wrinkled up old man. And he, and he says to his chief, he goes, what is that? <laughs> and he says, that's what happens to everyone as you age. Wow. And then he sees a sick person, ill person. He says, what, what is that? I said, it's sickness, it's illness. It happens to everyone at some point. And then he finally sees a corpse. He sees a dead body. He says, I don't understand What is it? He says, that is the end of all humans. Everyone dies. The fourth sight that he sees, he sees a Brahmin, an ascetic monk who who has gone to the extreme of not indulging himself. That's what I mean by an ascetic monk. And um, he has these four sights. And what he comes to, you remember what the sentence is for Buddhism? What is it? Life is suffering. This is where he figured that out. (laughs) Oh man, I've been kept from this. Life is absolute suffering. And then he has this burning question, what's the solution? There must be something that can solve human suffering. It's a noble quest, I think. This is what he is driven by. And so he does... One thing he says, um, it's called the first renunciation. He renounces all his wealth. He renounces the palace. He's married. He has a little boy. He leaves his wife, leaves his son. And against his father's wishes, he leaves the palace. And he starts following one of these ascetic monks. He studies under yogis 
for like five years. He learns to live on nothing. Some of the stories are that, you know, he existed on one piece of rice a day. And you could see his ribs. He's going to extreme asceticism in his life. And um, he realizes, though, that during this time, um, he's experienced both extremes. He had extreme wealth, and he had extreme privation. It's sort of like the book of Ecclesiastes, right? <laughs> I poured myself into this, you know, the author says, it didn't fulfill me. So I poured myself into it didn't fulfill me. He has that same kind of awareness. Neither one of these two extremes, I'm not finding peace, and there's certainly no end to suffering. So he's, he's on the border of India and Nepal, and he realizes Hinduism is bankrupt. Hinduism cannot answer the fundamental question to life. How can we stop suffering? So at that moment, he says, okay, now I'm going to renounce my asceticism. This is what's called his second great renunciation. He says, and I'm going to take what's called the middle way. Not the two extremes, but the middle way. You'll hear Buddhists use that language a lot. This is the middle way of things between the two extremes. And at that point, he's, he's sitting under a Bodhi tree and he's meditating, and through enlightenment and meditation, he goes through these stages, this sort of almost like a, you might say, a mystical experience. And he, he becomes detached from all his senses, is one of the stages. He, he has the ability to like single point focus, is what they say. Stage three is he experiences absolute bliss. Stage four, he's free from all dualism all dichotomies, you know, dichotomies either or. He's free of all that. At this point, he experiences what are called the six super-knowledges. <laughs> the first five are what are called mundane, meaning you can experience them while you're alive. The sixth one you only experience after uh, this life. So the six super-knowledges, he experiences the divine eye, this is the idea that um, he sees all the way that you experience birth and rebirth. He's like clued into the karmic laws of things. He experiences the divine ear. He can hear things like from afar, even up in the heavens. Um, knowledge of other minds. He can read people's thoughts. He had knowledge of all his previous lives, every single one of them. And then he had supernatural powers, the ability to, to become invisible, to pass through solid objects, to walk on water, to fly through air, to ascend into heaven. By the way, when Buddhists hear about Jesus, they think, oh, he's a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is someone who can reach nirvana, but they, they uh, defer for the good of people here. I'm going to stay here and help you find enlightenment too. And so, you know, as they, as they hear these things, because they believe that uh, the Buddha had these abilities. And so from here on out, he's no longer named, known by Siddhartha Gautama. He's known by the Buddha. It means the awakened one or the enlightened one. He has woken up to the true nature of all things. He has enlightenment. He is the Buddha. And there's great debate later on in Buddhism. Was he the only Buddha? 
Are there other, 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 are there many Buddhas? You know, could there be others? Um, but the point is that you have to turn the wheel of his dharma. Have you, I wish I had a picture over here. I don't. Have you seen the Indian flag before? Flag of India? You know what's on the center of it? It's a wheel, like a like a looks like an old ship, you know, a wheel on a boat. <clears throat> and there's a lot of groups that sort of grab onto that, but it's the idea that you have to turn the wheel of his dharma, of his teaching, in order to get off the wheel of birth and rebirth and birth and rebirth and going on and on. So he discovers enlightenment. So what's his enlightenment? <laughs> Four noble truths, and then the noble eightfold path of how to get off the wheel, get off the crazy wheel. So four noble truths are this. First noble truth is all life is suffering. <laughs> Second noble truth is that the source of suffering, desire. Makes sense. You want things, you don't have them, or you have things that you don't want. <laughs> That's suffering. <clears throat> the reason you're suffering is because of your desire, either desire for something or for not to have something. That makes sense? So it's, it's reasonable. All life is suffering. Two, source of suffering is desire. Three, if you end desire, you end suffering. That makes sense. I guess if I didn't desire anything, I would never be disappointed. <laughs> I would not suffer. And then the fourth noble truth is there's an eightfold path that can get you there. Life is suffering, source of suffering is you desire. If you stop desire, you stop suffering. I've got an eightfold path for you to reach that. So those are the four noble truths. And then the eightfold path is that wheel you have to turn to, to reach the state of nirvana. And these aren't super important. You don't need to write these, but it's like, you know, the right view or philosophy of life, right intention, right speech or speaking judiciously, uh, the right action or acting judiciously, the right livelihood. For Buddha, that meant being a monk. Later, that gets kind of changed. Right effort, spending energy properly. Right mindfulness, proper meditation. And then eight, the right concentration or keeping focus. So this is the eightfold path that you have to walk. So <clears throat> um, enter this ascetic life, go through these eight-fold steps, and over many lives, you will reach nirvana. Now, you might be thinking, what is nirvana? <laughs> what is that exactly? Um, Buddha gave an illustration. Again, Eastern people love pictures. Um, he said, think of a lamp. You know the kind of lamp that burns on oil? You've got oil inside the lamp, and there's a wick. There's a little flame. <clears throat> he said, um, the reason the flame keeps burning is because of the oil, right? If you stop feeding the lamp oil, eventually the flame goes out, right? So <clears throat> the oil is your karma. And every time you're adding oil to your lamp through karma, it's keeping it going. So we said over many, many lives, the oil's getting less and less and less, and, and, and the flame is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And right when it goes out on the wick, you've probably seen this, word, there's, there's a little curl of smoke, and, and it sort of whisks, and then it, it goes away. He says, that's nirvana. 
It is the cessation of all. It's the cessation of all desire. Shunyata is that nothingness, going into nothingness, rather. Let me show you... um, this is kind of just a funny little comic here. Have you seen this one before? This is the Dalai Lama, and it's his birthday. He's been given a present. And he says, wow, nothing, just what I always wanted. <laughs> Do you get it? If nirvana is nothing, the absence of everything, it's what he's always wanted, nothing. And, so, you know, it's just, it's just a funny little joke. But it, it gets at the idea of what a Buddhist is pursuing a Buddhist is pursuing the cessation of everything, of all, of all desire, and there's a particular way to do it. Um, so why couldn't Hinduism um, envelop Buddhism? If you remember I said last week, the great strength of Hinduism is it says yes to everything. Jesus, great, bring him on in. <laughs> this, bring it on in. Because that's only true down at the level that you think is real. There's a higher truth. That's Brahman, the world soul, if you remember. So all the little particularities that you experience in life, those are just kind of illusory. What's really real is Brahman. And so if you remember, the sentence of Hinduism was Atman, which that's the self. Atman is Brahman. Okay, that's, that's what I have to get in my mind. Why couldn't they accept Buddhism? Because um, Buddhism rejects some of the core ideas of Hinduism. For instance, um, Buddha rejected the Vedas and the Upanishads. These are the sacred documents which teach Atman as Brahman. And you know what Buddha said? He goes, Brahman doesn't even exist. <laughs> and they're like, ah, no, that's, yes, Brahman exists. And he goes, nope. Brahman doesn't even exist. Atman doesn't exist. Brahman doesn't exist. None of that. He rejects the caste system altogether. And remember, at this time, only the priestly class were the ones who were able to even reach nirvana. He just said, I just reject it all, altogether. Um, So for those reasons, those core reasons right there, it, it, it really had to become its own animal. It had to become its own movement, its own philosophy, its own faith, however you might think of it, because it's rejecting some of the core essential things, and there aren't many <clears throat> within Hinduism. It's rejecting those. It also rejects other things. These, aren't, these probably could have worked anyway. Hinduism, if you meet a Hindu, they believe in reincarnation or what we call transmigration of the soul, right? Buddhists say, no, 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 no. there's no enduring soul after this life. And you say, well, what do you you mean? You still believe in reincarnation? And he says, yes. He would say this. The, the, The self is made up of aggregates, five aggregates. It's made up of pieces. It's not a substance. There's no substance of you. You're made up of aggregates, and those are like matter, Sensation, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. That's what he identified. So if you think there's a genuine self that goes into the next life, you're believing the illusion that's keeping you stuck 
on the birth and rebirth. That's part of the illusion. That's part of what you have to come to believe isn't there. So what are we? Okay, we're this collection. He used, he used a great example. He said, think of a chariot. You ever seen a chariot before? Chariot's made up of parts. It's a collection. It's not a substance. If I say chariot to you, there's no substance of chariot. There's a collection of parts that's a chariot, right? You've got a wheel, and you've got a base, and you've got, I don't know, the different parts of a chariot. <clears throat> so he said, at, at death, all those parts break up, and then they rejoin with other parts and come back together in a next life. But it's not the same chariot. <laughs> all those parts, because remember, there's, no, there's nothing enduring. That's all part of the illusion. So even the self doesn't endure death. It just breaks up into parts and then comes back. <clears throat> now, later in Buddhism, um, there actually came, much, much later, other, you might say, reform movements within Buddhism. Um, here's why, and this is kind of one of the funny things. Um, you know, the Eightfold Noble Path, in order to do all eight, you have to be an ascetic monk or a nun, male or female, and you have to give your whole life to it. Well, <clears throat> what, the, what the Buddha had done was created another Brahmin caste, so to speak. <laughs> it's the ascetics. Because it's only those people who can reach nirvana. You gotta do all eight of them, and to do all eight, you have to give your entire life to it. You can't do anything else. So ironically, the Buddha had actually created his own exclusive caste. And so there's these reform movements. So you have like Theravada Buddhism, the original, and then it's, well, now we're gonna have Mahayana Buddhism. And there's Tibetan Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, and Zen Buddhism. And it, 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 it flowers off based on reforms or what are called dissent movements. No, I don't like that. I think, I think nirvana should be available for anyone, even if you're not a monk or you're a nun. And so things, things change here. <clears throat> Let me do this. I want to, um, if you remember week three, I think, I said there are a couple different ways to kind of Think about, evaluate, categorize a religious worldview. One is you, you can ask three questions. What is ultimate reality? Is it God? Is it just matter? Is it us? Like what, what's ultimately real? What's, what's behind everything? What's the human problem? And what's the human solution? You remember that? Really easy way to sort of uh, put these different worldviews sort of in, in their particular place. So I just want to ask those questions and sort of compare Buddhism and biblical Christianity. And then I want to look at some of these claims that are made within Buddhism and say, how does, how does the Buddhist answer stack up next to the biblical answer? Which one's more compelling to you? Which one seems more true or accurate. So let's just ask the question of ultimate reality. What's ultimately behind things? Biblical Christianity would say it's a personal God. He's self-existent. He's changeless. Um, if you remember the week we talked about Judaism, it's the one who speaks out of the bush and says, I am who I am. It's a personal, self-conscious being. What's ultimate reality within Buddhism? It's, it's nirvana, which is just void. 
you know, it's, it's not Brahman, it's, not, it's, it's void, it's empty. It's, it's the empty present box <laughs> that the Dalai Lama got. What's the human problem? Well, according to biblical Christianity, we're made in the image of God, but we suffer because of our sin and we're out of relationship with God. That's the human problem, that I'm, I'm, I'm not in communion with God. What's the human problem within Buddhism? We suffer because we desire the illusion that we exist as selves. That's why you suffer. And that keeps you on the cycle of birth and rebirth and rebirth and rebirth. That's the problem. Okay, What's the solution to those problems? According to biblical Christianity... By repenting of our sin, placing our trust in the saving work of Jesus, we're forgiven by God and we're reconciled to communion with God. And this is one of the key differences within biblical Christianity and most Eastern, most Eastern views. The goal is not communion, it's union. Do you know the difference? Union is the, the absence of self, you just get absorbed into it. Union and communion are radically different things within these two worldviews. What's the solution for Buddhism? By following the four noble truths, mostly ceasing desire, you can enter into union with that which is permanent, nirvana, where the ego, it's distinguished. It, extinguished rather. So, I mean, these are very, very different answers. And I say this because there are many uh, books, authors out there, which um, try to put forth this idea, you can be a Christian Buddhist. And it's like, these, so, these worldviews are so diametrically opposed to one, you, you can't even fit them in the same room. They're completely answering opposite questions. Okay, here, Last thing, do the Buddhist answers really work? And what does the Bible offer in response? Well, let's look at, first of all, this concept of non-attachment. Um, to, uh, to cease desire, right, right, that's the goal, you have to, um, they use the phrase um, self-grasping, that we attach ourselves to things that we think are permanent, we think we're permanent, and it's not, and because we try to, attach ourselves and grasp things, that, that is um, part of the problem. And so what you have to pursue is non-attachment, okay? Um, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Think about this, non-attachment of all things in order to obtain nirvana. Do you see that there's a, there's a self-contradiction within the very means. There's an inherent contradiction at work. Everything being done within Buddhism is for the goal of obtaining nirvana. Now there was a yes, but that's the extinguishing. <clears throat> but see, the means of obtaining this is to stop desiring to obtain. Do you see the problem? You're supposed to stop desiring to obtain and you're doing that in order to obtain this state. 
Even if, you, even if it's, you know, you can't describe it fine, you're still attempting to obtain a state. Non-attachment of beliefs and truth. Let me read for you um, some words. There was a book called Living Buddha, Living Christ. Uh, this is a person who is, you know, purporting this, you can be a Christian Buddhist. <clears throat> His name is Thich Nhat Hanh. And he writes this. It's not, it's not super important you get all his points. I just want you to generally hear what he's saying and then think about kind of, again, what's wrong. He says, the second precept of the order of interbeing, meaning the Dharma, this is like the, the path, this is what you have to do. The second precept founded within Zen Buddhist tradition during the war in Vietnam is about letting go of views. Do not think the knowledge you possess is changeless or absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn to practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Here's the question I would have of the author. Should I be non-attached to his view? No, he didn't write a whole book so that I wouldn't attach myself to his view. He wrote a whole book so that I would attach myself to his view, right? I mean, he's saying, here's, here's what you need to do. Don't do this, do that. It's, it, it's self-refuting. It's self-contradictory. If we shouldn't desire, you know, here's a question. I remember asking a Buddhist this one time, and it, it just... It just doesn't connect, but um, this was a, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist. And I asked the question, um, if, if we shouldn't desire, why does the Dalai Lama desire Tibet to be free? He does, doesn't he? Well, that's just going to keep him stuck on the wheel of samsara, of birth and rebirth. The point is this, a Buddhist can't live consistently with these ideas. These ideas can't... Um, be married together. <laughs> they're they're self-refuting concepts. What is the biblical view? Um, I think this is up on the screen here. Uh, Matthew chapter six, verse thirty-one, about attachment, grasping, desiring. What's the biblical view? Jesus says this. Um, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow and thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you little faith? Do not be anxious about anything, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear, for the Gentiles seek after these things. And he says, and your heavenly Father knows, uh, where am I, I lost my space. Father knows that you need them, but here's the answer. Seek, pursue, seek first the kingdom of God. And then what? <laughs> then all those things, you'll, you'll have them. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says, the point is this, if you, if you shoot after first things, you get second things thrown in. If you shoot after second things, you miss both first things and second things. That's Jesus' point. He doesn't say don't grasp, don't desire, don't long for anything, if you remember when Jerry Root was here, and one of the nights he talked about this idea of one of the uh, great additives from C.S. Lewis is this concept of the longing of the human heart. 
And he says, that's a key. The fact that you have this longing for various things, that is a key to the meaning of life. You were made for, the, for something that you long for. See, desire is not wrong in and of itself, according to the Bible. It's what you desire in what order. Augustine talked about the ordos amore, the order of your loves. If your loves are out of order, you can love God, but if you love something more, your, order, your loves are disordered, and you experience a disordered love. And he says, that's the nature of sin, disordered love. Um, second thought, karma. If each life is paying for karmic actions of previous lives, here's the question you have to ask. You'd say, um, do you believe there was a first life? Well, if so, the question becomes quite obvious. What is one paying for in his or her first life? Right? If you're always paying off karma, how... How were you born with karma if there was a, a first life? I think that makes a real problem. Now, Buddha claimed to recall an infinite number of births, he said. Um, however, he also had a final birth. If you have a final birth, guess what you don't have? An infinite number. Do you see the math problem? <laughs> if you have a final one, you did not have an infinite set. Or you said an infinite one, you had a set. Of lives again, it's self-contradictory. Um, let me read you this from one Christian author who's who's writing about this. He says, um, "Everything you've lived through is the fruit of all that you have sown." He's saying, according to a Buddhist worldview, you were not free from debt when you were born, and you won't be free from debt when you die. Yet, how does one pay? With what does one pay? And to whom does one pay? The creator haunts, but isn't there. So the karmic system sort of wants to have a concept of retribution and justice, but, but they say there's no moral agent or mind behind it. It's, it's just sort of working this way. The problem is these are moral debts. This is moral behavior. Many of these actions are. A moral debt only makes sense in the context of personhood. If you have another person who you have wronged or anyway, <clears throat> what's the biblical view? What's the answer that it offers? 1 John 1, 9, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, you know what's interesting? You know what it doesn't say? If we confess our sins, he has mercy. Have you ever thought about that? He's faithful and just. Why is that? Because the cross guaranteed it. He's being just in doing this because of what Jesus has accomplished. Similarly, you know, this concept of um, being stuck, being a slave to the wheel of samsara, Look at uh, John 8, verse 36. The context is slavery, and he writes this. If the Son sets you free, this is the message of the Buddhist, he can set you free from whatever wheel you think you're on. You will be free indeed. That we have a God who himself personally 
frees us from those chains, from the chains of suffering, from the chains of death, and so on. Another um, issue is personhood, individual personhood. According to Buddhism, there's no lasting essence. Remember, there's no you. You're, you're a collection, not an essence. And at death, you break apart. So there's no individual personhood um, of these numerous births. Instead, a person is made up of these collection, sconders is what they're called, which combine during one lifetime, only to separate at death and join with the collection at the next birth. Here's the problem. How can one be said to be paying for his or her karma if there's no him or her? Do you see that? If there's no him or... Within a Hindu context, I can say, oh, I'm paying for the sins of my last life because my is a real thing. (laughs) Atman, that's real. Within Buddhism, there's no my last life. It's just this collection. So I'm paying for like maybe some of mine and maybe some others people or like, how is that working? How is that possibly answering? How does the Bible, what kind of answer does it give? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. Paul writes this, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He has this concept that upon death, there is still a substantial conscious self who exists. And he says, we would rather be with the Lord. It's this personal connection with someone, even post-death. It gives much much greater dignity to the Bible. Buddhism's answer to life's pain, which is the very thing that started Buddha, right? I mean, how do I stop? That's a noble quest. It's a noble question. How do we end suffering? I would submit to you the answer that Buddhism gives is cheap. And it's dehumanizing. It dehumanizes the individual, first of all, saying because there really is no one. It gives no dignity to pain and suffering. The cross gives dignity to pain and suffering. In the end... The answer, according to Buddhism, is not justice. You know, you know all that evil that's been done in the world? Like, think of the worst things that have ever been done in the world. According to a Buddhist worldview, justice will never be meted out. It's just, it's, it's unanswered. Instead, everyone will be snuffed out. How, is that satisfying to you? All the, the evil that I recoil at in the world... And it's just, ah, at the end of the day, what, the way Hitler lived his life and the way Mother Teresa lived her life won't ultimately matter because all will be union with the one which is undescribable, nothing. There's no individual selves and there's no justice because there's no judge behind things. Again, how does the Bible think about this? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, starting in verse 54, we read this. He's speaking of um, how justice will ultimately come, what our ultimate hope is in resurrection. And he speaks of it as this. It's when the perishable, that's the, our bodies that, that uh, perish, it's going to one day put on the imperishable. 
Isn't that cool? It's not gonna be snuffed out. Your perishable life that you have, it's gonna one day be made imperishable. You're gonna put it on like a cloak is the image that he uses. And then he says, when that happens, when this happens, then the saying that is written will finally come true. Death, it's swallowed up in victory. And then he taunts death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's the biblical answer. This resonates with the longings that I have in my heart. This resonates with the things that bothered Siddhartha Gautama, old age and illness and death, the things that, that, that ail humanity. He was rightly bothered by them. But only Jesus gives this answer to it. And this, this answer is like resoundingly beautiful. <laughs> it's compelling. I desperately want it to come true. I desperately want this phrase to come true, that it can be written. It's swallowed up. And what's so cool about this language is swallowed up in the Old Testament. It constantly speaks of the grave swallowing humans. And what the author is saying here is that one day, Jesus swallows the graves. <laughs> he wins at the end. He gets it. He gets what he, what he wants, which is his human family ruling and reigning with him. He gets us and we get him and we get each other. That's pretty good. <laughs> and that's why we take communion. We, we remember and proclaim. Remember what Christ did on the cross and we proclaim one day things will be swallowed up by him. He's coming again. It gives us hope to live between the two places, what Christ did and what he will do in the future. So here's what I would ask you to do. Take the next 60 seconds in your own heart. Go to your God. I'll watch the clock and then we'll all take the elements together. We take communion. It was instituted by our Lord just prior to his death. He took a meal, a Passover meal about God, how God would rescue his people. And he changed this symbolic meal to say there's a greater exodus happening, a greater rescue. And so he said, every time you eat this bread of this exodus meal, I want you to remember and proclaim my body broken for you until I come again. Let's take the bread. And the same way after the meal, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in a new covenant with the Father, spilled for you, take and drink. Amen. Let me, let me say a benediction over you before you go. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. <laughs> he sees all, it's not karma. 
God will make everything right. All sadness will come untrue. <laughs> Do you long for that? Me too, me too. Hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Thank you for being here. Thanks for being Timberline. Love you guys.